If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. And uh, next week we're going to begin a brand new expositional series through 2 Timothy. Um, we, we taught through 1 Timothy some three and a half years ago. Now we're going to jump into 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is this beautiful book about, about passing on, uh, handing down this great treasure of the gospel, and, and not just handing it down, but living in light of it ourselves. So how do we live in light of the gospel? How do we rest in the gospel? Um, that's all going to start next week, but this morning we're going to be in Matthew 4. About three and a half years ago, my son, who was a senior in high school at the time at James Clemens, uh, was, beginning, uh, was starting his, uh, the basketball season. He played on the varsity basketball team, and the coach asked him, and really all the players, he said, hey, would you... Um, well, you guys want to come up with a, a theme for this upcoming season, kind of a, a unifying motto. And you know a lot of, a lot of teams do this at every level, level, professional level, collegiate, high school. And so the coach asked him, why don't you guys work together and come up with a theme for this upcoming year? And, and so my son Luke asked me, he said, Dad, I know you like this sort of thing. And he said, would you be interested in, in throwing out some ideas? I said, I'd, I'd love to. And so I, I came up with a few, and, and some were better than others. But uh, the first one I thought was pretty good. I said, hey, look, how about this? Together we soar. Now, remember, James, so James Clemens is the Jets, the Jets. So I thought, well, let's, let's keep that in mind. I said, together we soar. He said, dad, that's, that's terrible. That's boring. It's corny. And nobody, nobody wants that. I said, what about this? Every ounce, every play, you know, just kind of we're all in sort of thing. And he said, dad, that has nothing to do with Jets. And so I really want to keep this in mind. Something had to do with jets. And I, now I knew this would not. I knew this one was not going to work. Let's get high together. So that's that. That's definitely you can go in any direction with that. And that's not what we want to communicate. Um, so I said, what about this? Soaring above mediocrity. He said, Dad, this is a basketball team, not a multi-level sports or multi-level uh, you know marketing scheme. And so I said, okay, well, and I tried. I couldn't come up with anything, um, and they went with something else. And I don't remember what it was. It wasn't very memorable like mine that I had suggested, but they went in a different direction. Uh, well, every year, the first Sunday of every calendar year, what I like to do is, is kind of throw out a theme that we have thought about at the staff level, elder level, that would be something that we can really focus on uh, for the upcoming year. In the past years, we've talked about a couple years ago the the need for absolute dependent prayer. And so I called that the year of dependent prayer. And as a result of that, we added some, some different elements to our, our worship services. We added a, a pastoral prayer element where we do prayers of confession and prayers of renewal and prayers of celebration, prayers of dependence and so on. And, and so this year, I want to I focus on this for today, and we're not going to have any t-shirts made or, or any buttons printed, but I want to think about this one theme as we enter into this new year. And this was actually supposed to be a sermon for last week, um, but, but God and, and COVID had other plans. And so um, this is the theme I want us to think about for this upcoming year, and especially this morning. Let's spend more time listening to God. Let's spend, spend more time listening to God. Of course, what I mean by that is let's spend more time listening to God in His Word. I really want and have been praying that as a church that, of course, we want, we want the Word of God to, to inform and to drive everything we do as a church. But beyond that, we want the Word of God to, to, to minister to us. We want to be in the Word of God individually, feeding our own souls as we take in uh, the Word. And so... 
I want to encourage us in that direction from the Scriptures, and then at the end of the service, I have a tool um, that I'm going to show you, recommend to you, that we actually have in our foyer that you can you can grab on the way out if you're so inclined. But, but let me just say this. Rather than berate anyone for not spending time in the Word, uh, rather than guilt trip anyone for missing days or anything like that, I want to take a different approach. I want to show you from Jesus' own example what God does when we take in the Word. So this is really going to be about what God does as we take in the Word. So this is going to be more, this is going to be more grace-soaked than law-heavy, but I want to look at what God does as we take in the Word. So Matthew chapter 4, if you're new here, what we do is we just preach through the Bible. Uh, we mostly go through books at a time, but uh, today we're in a, a section, kind of a self-contained unit of the temptation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, let me begin by reading verses 1 through 4. Here reads the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So verse 1 begins with this word, then. Then Jesus. Now this is meant to link this passage to the preceding passage, which is the account of the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Now sometimes people ask, they say, why? If John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and Jesus had nothing uh, to repent of because he never sinned, then why would Jesus get baptized? And the answer is, by being baptized... Jesus fulfills those scriptures that talk about the Messiah identifying with his people and actually being counted among the transgressors, like Isaiah 53, the prophet's right of this. I love what New Testament scholar Leon Morris says about this incident. He says, Jesus might well have been up there in front standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with the sinners affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he would in due course accomplish. In other words, Jesus, the sinless one, took his place among the sinful so that he could identify with us sinful humanity and ultimately be our representative, our substitute. So Jesus is identifying with sinful humanity so that He could be our substitute, so that when we believe on Him, His life, His obedient life, would be counted as ours. But in the passage that I just read, and we're working through this morning, Jesus' obedience would be tested. Verse 1 goes on to say that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the very Spirit of God, the very God Himself led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, when we read that, we might have some alarm bells that go off in our mind. We might think, now, wait a second. How does that work? Was God tempting Jesus to sin? And how do we reconcile that with what the Scriptures say elsewhere? For example, James 1.13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God tempts no one, and yet here we have the Spirit of God leading Jesus into the wilderness for the sole purpose, it says, to be tempted. 
Well, how do we make sense of that? There's a difference between being tested and being tempted to do evil. The Greek word, the New Testament written in Greek, and the Greek word here in Matthew 4 can be translated either way. To be sure, God has something very different in mind for Jesus than Satan does. Satan's desire is to destroy Jesus, to derail his message, message, uh, mission, rather, to discredit Jesus. God's desire, though, is to reveal Jesus' true identity and to intensify the Son's trust in the Father's plan. This is really, I think it's helpful for us even to think through ourselves. It's the same way with us. When we go through trials and, and hardship and temptations, and uh, what, the, what Satan wants to do is destroy us. He wants, to, he wants to lure us away from the sufficiency of Christ's work. He wants to plant in us doubts and feelings of shame and guilt and feelings that we can never be loved, we can never belong to God. And so what Satan wants to do is to to pull us away from community, to get us away from the gospel. But in those same trials and temptations and struggles and hardships, God's goal, by, by sovereignly allowing us to go through those things, is actually to refine our faith, to deepen our faith, to strengthen our trust in Him. And Satan cannot do anything, we're going to see this in just a moment, to the Christian that God doesn't allow him to do, which is ultimately for our good. So the first, first time the devil approaches Jesus, Jesus is, is incredibly hungry. Verse 2 says that he's gone 40 days and 40 nights without food. Now, he had water, it would appear, but, but no food. And the devil says, look, if you are the Son of God, just turn these stones into bread. Now, we have to think about this. Jesus has to be at an, an incredibly low point here. I mean, he's, he's hungry, obviously. He probably has a terrible headache, you know, the kind of headaches you get when you don't eat. Um, he, he could be very well sunburnt out in the, uh, the blazing Middle Eastern sun. He's probably weak, most certainly weak, um, probably in pain. And the devil invites Jesus to turn these stones in front of him into bread. Now, have you ever thought about this? What would have been wrong with... Jesus turning stone, turning bread, turning rocks rather into bread. What would have been wrong with that? Why would that, would that have been a sin? Why would that have been a sin? After all, the same person turned water into wine. So why would this have been wrong? Well, what the devil's trying to do is to convince Jesus to exercise his power in a way that was inconsistent with his mission, his God-ordained mission. See, the Bible tells us there's a reason that Jesus came to the earth, and that was to seek and save the lost, which is how we all enter the world, lost, apart from God and separated from God, alienated from God, and that alienation from God manifests in selfishness and impatience, rebellion and fear, and we're not just fearful, but but also uh, spiritually dead, enemies of God deserving of God's eternal wrath because of the sin we inherited and the sin that we practice. So we enter into this world lost. But God said that He sent His Son to seek and save the lost so that we could know God and and be known and, and loved by God. Jesus came to bring forgiveness and life, a forgiveness that has nothing to do with our works or our earning, but only His work. Forgiveness that is ours by faith alone. But in order for Jesus to make us right with God, 
He had to pay the penalty for our sin. And in order for that payment to be accepted, the one offering that payment had to be both fully God and fully man. Otherwise, the payment would not be enough. And that required Jesus, of course, to set aside His divine privileges, never surrendering His deity for a second, but refusing to lay claim to His rights as God. This is what Philippians 2 is all about. What the devil tempts Jesus to do is exercise those divine rights apart from the Father's will and mission. But Jesus is not enticed. He says to the devil, No man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. Now we know this, of course, is a reference to the Holy Scriptures. I told you we're going to start a new series in, uh, next week in 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy has that great chapter, chapter 3 and that great passage where it says that, all Scripture is, this Greek word, theopneustos, breathed out by God. All Scripture comes from the very mouth of God. This is what Jesus is talking about when He says that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? This is a reference to the Bible. And Jesus' response, by the way, has atomic significance for you and me. Because what it does is, is it shows the centrality of the Word of God in the life of Jesus. And if Jesus was that dependent on the Word of God, then what does it say about our need for the Word of God? About 1,500 years before Jesus was born, uh, the people of Israel, Jesus' own uh, ancestors, right, um, they were enslaved in Egypt. And, and the people of Egypt were cruel taskmasters. They were vicious and they were merciless. Uh, but God remembered His people, and He raised up Moses, who was a shepherd, to go. And through Moses, God would miraculously, supernaturally deliver the people of Israel. They go through the Red Sea. God parts the sea. And you remember this historic, incredible event, the kind of stuff that the movies are made of, right? It's, it's just this amazing, true story of God's deliverance. Well, after the people got out past the Red Sea into the, into the wilderness, they doubted God. And God had provided for them the promised land. He said, this is yours, but because they were afraid to actually take possession of the promised land, but allowed fear to overtake them, God caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, they did a lot of complaining, and they did a lot of whining and murmuring. They, they were very, very desperate at times. They were so desperate, they thought they were going to die. They were a lot more desperate than this guy that I met one time in San Francisco. I we did a, a driving trip from Los Angeles to San Francisco. We got up there and uh, we, were, we went to this restaurant. Anybody heard of the restaurant called Jack in the Box? It's a little bit different than Jack's here. But anyway, we went to this restaurant. We were leaving the restaurant and, and as we left, there was a homeless guy there who had a sign and said, you know, no money, out of work with six kids. And so I went up to him and I said, man, I have, I have zero cash. I mean, true statement, I had no cash. I said, I have no cash at all, but I will... I'll be happy to go buy you and, and all your, your kids and your family hamburgers from Jack in the Box. The guy looked at me and said, oh, they won't eat that. This is what he said about his, his own family. This is a homeless guy. They're not going to eat Jack in the Box. It definitely says something about Jack in the Box, but it says something about this guy as well. He was not really that desperate, right? The people of Israel, they were very desperate. They thought they were going to die. They thought they would never make it. But God, because of His mercy and His love, He constantly provided for them. He sent them manna from heaven in order to sustain them and keep them alive. Now, Moses 
would write about that occasion later in, in Deuteronomy 8. And I want you to take note of the last phrase here. So Deuteronomy 8, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you what? Know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, when have we last heard that phrase? Just a moment ago, right? That's what Jesus said to the devil when the devil tempted him. Well, what's the significance Deuteronomy 8, he says, he, he humbled you, speaking of God, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna so that you might know that man does not live by bread alone. The Israelites' physical need in the desert, their need for physical food, and the reason that God let them experience such hunger was meant to show them how dependent they were at every moment on the God who would redeem them. And the physical provision of bread in the desert, in the wilderness, was meant to point to an even greater reality, the faithfulness of God's spiritual provisions for those who depend on Him, for those who listen to Him by His Word. So here's what I'm getting at, and these points will come in, in fairly rapid succession, but here's what, this is our first point this morning. The Word of God reminds us on every page of God's faithfulness and our need for Him. Now notice that Jesus doesn't say, in quoting Deuteronomy 8, He doesn't say, man does not live by bread at all. Because of course, man does need bread. Man needs physical food. But both Moses and Jesus say, man does not live by bread alone. In other words, again, here's the deeper significance of Jesus' use of this Old Testament passage. In the same way that we must have literal bread to survive, literal physical food, we need spiritual bread, the Word of God, to, to survive spiritually. So what Jesus says to the devil essentially is, what's more important than my physical nourishment at this very moment, even though I haven't eaten in 40 days, what's more important than my physical nourishment is my own soul care, my spiritual care, that my soul be nourished continually by the Word of God. And how is Jesus' soul nourished? By the accounts of God's faithfulness and His power revealed on every page of Scripture. If Jesus, if Jesus was that dependent on the Word of God, then how much more are we dependent on the Word of God. If Jesus, who was, according to John 17, one with the Father, was that dependent on the Word of God, how much more are we? See, we need the Word of God in order to survive spiritually. You and I need the Word of God in order to survive spiritually. When we take in the Word of God, we read about the words and the deeds of a God whose glory is so bright that no one can look at Him and live, whose power is so great that even the mountains tremble at His voice, a God who is not to be trifled with, and yet a God 
who is incredibly, incredibly patient, shockingly loving, remarkably forgiving, a God who is tender and kind, who never turns his back on his children. And, in, and by taking in the word of God, we encountered a God who loved a sin-cursed world so much that he gave his only son to die on a cross so that we could be forgiven. When we take in that story, our faith is strengthened and our joy is increased in him. Now look at verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So there was a, there was a first century theologian by the name of Josephus, who was a Jewish theolo- uh, historian, and he said that from the, the highest part of the temple to the lowest part of the ravine, which is, now this is where Jesus was, the highest part of the temple, the view was so spectacular and, and, and the height so uh, nerve-wracking that, that it was stunning. The people below looked like dots on the ground. This is where Jesus was. And what does the devil try to get Jesus to do here? To test God, to see if God really will send his angels to protect Jesus. Psalm 91 says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, which is ultimately a reference to Jesus. So the devil wants to entice Jesus. Here's what he wants him to do. He wants to entice Jesus to gain knowledge improperly rather than trust God. Now, where does this, what does this make us think of? Of course, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, given everything by God, everything for their enjoyment, everything for them to fill out culturally and to expand. And the, the devil, the tempter, comes along and says, yeah, but there's a lot of stuff that God doesn't really want you to know. And he, he's actually holding out on you. Because if you eat the tree, the, 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 then you'll become like God. You'll become like God yourself. And so what do they do? They start to question, well, maybe God's not, not giving us enough. Maybe not, God has not truly given us what satisfies. They, they believe that they need to find out for themselves. So they gain that knowledge improperly. But unlike Adam, faced with a similar temptation, Jesus will not give in. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the last Adam. Instead of falling to the devil's schemes, Jesus again quotes from Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So with each temptation, Jesus appeals to the Word of God and what is revealed about God in the Word. Because the more that Jesus rests and considers the unchanging character of God revealed in His Word, the more temptation loses its power. Now, here's our second point. The Word of God is the means by which the Spirit of God gives power to withstand temptation and grow in holiness. Now, Jesus didn't have to grow in holiness because He was always fully and completely holy, but for us, the Word of God is, is both is the means by which the Spirit of God gives power to resist, withstand temptation, and grow in holiness. This is the time of the year, of course, the beginning of the year, when you know, we all have those thoughts like, I just have to stop doing this. 
I, I just have to stop doing that, whatever it is. And there's nothing wrong with those convictions. Those, those, are, those are good convictions. But here's the problem. Just having those convictions will never give us the power to actually do better or to stop sinning. Growth in the Christian life, growth and change are not byproducts of greater resolve, rules followed, or boxes checked. Growth and change are the effects of going deeper and deeper and deeper into the grace and love of God. So spiritual development, becoming more like Christ, happens as we recognize more fully and depend more desperately on God's unmerited favor for us, secured by Jesus' death on the cross. See, this is a beautiful thing revealed, about, revealed in the Bible, the story of redemption. And that is that not only did Jesus die for us, but He also lived for us. Jesus, you know this, Jesus actually read the Bible perfectly for you. So when you fail to read the Bible, when I fail to read the Bible, when we leave it there to gain dust and we don't look at it, God actually sees Jesus' perfect Bible reading record. He sees that in us. He sees that as our own. Jesus obeyed God in every way, and when we trust in Him, God sees Jesus' obedience as our own. And as we constantly fill our hearts and minds with the reality of God's love for us by taking in His Word, where Jesus is always on display, God's power is made manifest in us. He strengthens us to resist temptation. He causes us to grow in holiness. But when we ignore that God-appointed means, we ignore the Word of God, His love seems more distant to us. His promises more tenuous. His faithfulness more questionable. And our guilt, and in our guilt and shame, temptation overwhelms us. I got a call the day after Christmas, the morning after Christmas, from a guy. I answer the phone. I could barely understand him. This is just three weeks ago or whatever. I couldn't understand him. He was sobbing and crying so loudly. I said, well, just hold on, just take a breath, help me understand what's going on. And he went on to tell me that he had just discovered, so after the kid, everybody, the multiple kids, the kids are all sitting there opening presents, and they finished opening their presents, and you know how young kids do, they play with them for like 30 seconds, and then they're whatever, and the kids were just playing around, running around the house, and he said he saw out of the corner of his eye his wife sending a, a lewd picture to another man. And he said, when we got into it, I, I discovered, found out that she was actually having an extramarital affair. And he's, te- he's telling me this, and he's just, he's gasping, he's sobbing. I said, and he kept apologizing for crying. I said, look, no, it's okay. You don't have to apologize. Look, this is heartbreaking. My heart is breaking for you right now. And he went on to tell me about his wife and his wife, uh, this is their part of another church, his, his, his wife was actually a leader of a women's Bible study group. His wife was actually a, a, a licensed, biblical, certified biblical counselor in the church and slowly started to pull away from community, 
slowly became, you know, disinterested in the things of God, slowly stopped taking in the Word, stopped reading her Bible, had little interest in spiritual things. And as she stopped reading the Word, and as she stopped being around community, there was a coldness that she developed, both toward her husband and toward the things of God. And over time, she got to a place where not only did temptation overwhelm her, but now she's leaving her family, and she wants nothing to do with God, Christ, or His church. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if, you, if you're not faithful in your Bible reading, you will necessarily fall infidelity, into infidelity. But what I am saying is, without a steady diet of the Word of God, we will end up falling into despondency, into shame, into hopelessness, into despair, and into idolatry. And those sin struggles will manifest in a number of destructive ways. But as we take in the Word of God, the Spirit of God is at work empowering us and enabling us not just to resist temptation, but conforming us into the image of God's Son. Now the devil has one more, one more play here. Look at verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So in the first couple of the first temptations, the devil tries very subtly to entice Jesus to, into using good things improperly, right? into using his power for a way that was inconsistent with his mission, into gaining knowledge improperly. But in the third, the devil dispenses with all subtlety and says, look, just worship me. Just worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Look at the kingdoms of the world. They can be yours if you will bow down before me. And Jesus says, no. Again, the scriptures are clear that we shall worship and serve only the Lord our God. And then verse 10, he says, be gone, Satan, and the devil left him. Now, one of the beautiful things about this passage is it reveals that Jesus has power over Satan. In his historic hymn, A Mighty Fortress, that we sang last week, Martin Luther has that famous line in the third stanza. You know, the third stanza says, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. Then that last phrase, one little word shall fell him. Now some people, now the, the overall song is based on Psalm 46, but some people say that that particular line is based on Jesus' exchange with the demoniac. Other people say that it was, comes out of this temptation account. It doesn't matter. What matters is just in case we start to think from this passage that Jesus just has to sit there and listen to the devil and there's nothing he can do about it and he's powerless, he just has to sit there and listen to the devil drone on, we see that when Jesus tells Satan to go, Satan flees. The devil cannot make one move, cannot advance one inch beyond what the great king will allow. 
Satan has made his best efforts and they fall flat against the Son of God, whose sonship is yet again affirmed by his triumphant victory over the devil. I like what a New Testament scholar Daniel Doriani writes. He says, Satan will try anything, subterfuge and effrontery. Jesus defeats both strategies. He is too strong, too good to fail. Jesus is too strong. He is too mighty. He is too wise. He is too faithful. He will not be duped by the devil. All it takes is one word from Jesus and the devil is cast away. Why do we need the Word of God? Here's our final point this morning. The Word of God reveals the unrivaled power of Jesus, the victor who spells the end to Satan and his schemes. You know, when we got to the end of 2020, so many of us were like, yes, I finally, this year is over. I don't ever want to think about 2020 again. And then we found out that 2021 was kind of a cruel joke, kind of the encore that we never wanted, you know, more of the same, different variants, whatever. And we said, this is, this is not, this is so exhausting. And we see, we've seen over the last couple of years that we don't know what normal is going to look like. We don't know if things are going to ever return to the way they were. Life is hard. And life is filled with uncertainty. And we don't know what the next day holds for us. Listen to Pastor Adam's beautiful sermon last week. And, and, and was able, the way he just shared, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. There are probably bad things that are going to happen to us this upcoming year. And then in the middle of all that uncertainty, we're also involved in a very real spiritual battle. So the devil is real. The devil has his minions, his demons, and they look to destroy God's people. But the Bible tells us the true story of God's plan to redeem and restore the world that he made and the people that he has chosen. And that plan, which includes the glory of his saints... And the final binding of the devil cannot be changed, challenged, or thrown off track. As Job says, after all he endured, he comes to this moment of of great lucidity and clarity. And he says to God, God, no plan of yours can be thwarted. As we saw through our Advent series in December, the King has come to the earth. The kingdom has arrived. Yes, we still struggle with sin. And yes, there is still a a roaring and roaming devil who seeks to devour God's people. The battle against Satan rages on, but the war has already been won. Jesus Christ has defeated the powers of death and hell. And the devil can do nothing except what the King of Kings allows him to do. And what the King of Kings allows him to do is always for the glory of God and the good of God's people. The Bible tells the story of the victory that Jesus has secured for His people. The details of a total and cosmic renewal. And the more we take in God's Word with regularity, with faithfulness, with sincerity... That grand story of redemption, the more we keep that victory of Jesus in front of us, the one that is foreshadowed in the prophets, the one that's celebrated in the gospels and the epistles, the one that we look forward to in the apocalyptic literature, the final victory, 
the consummation of all things, the more we keep that grand story of redemption in front of us while we live in a world with constant defeats and setbacks at every turn, our faith is strengthened. Our hope is renewed. Our fears are put to rest. That's what the Word of God does. That's what God does when we take in His Word. And so my prayer for you has been the same prayer for myself. Let's listen more to God this year. Let's listen more carefully. Let's listen more humbly. Let's take in the Word of God and lean into what God has to say to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. You've not left us alone. You have given us each other, the church. You have given us your spirit, the Holy Spirit who indwells, who lives in each of us. And you have given us your word, which is living and active and powerful the grand story of redemption whereby you reassure us of your love. Father, I just want to pray for us as a church now that you would cause us to to be in the Word even more. And if we miss a day, Lord, help us not to fret over it. You see Jesus' perfect Bible reading record as ours. You see His perfect obedience as ours. So help us not to live with guilt and shame. Let's pick up on the next day. Help us, Lord. Give us a desire so that when we, when we open up your word, it's not a burden to us. It's, it's actually our opportunity to take in the story of your love for us, a story centering on the person and work of Jesus. Father, will you help us and will you give us the grace to do it? And will you reveal yourself to us by your word? Will you conform us into the image of your Son? Will you grow us in holiness? Will you give us the power to resist temptation? Will you remind us again and again and again and again of your faithful and unchanging character? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.